0: I'm Ben Horton.
1: And I'm Agnes Brimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House.
0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Agnes, are you there?
1: I am here. Hello, Ben. How are you?
0: I'm doing fine, thank you. I'm doing fine. In a weird way, better since the rain came.
1: Oh, it's joyous. It's done wonders for my hay fever, but also just, it feels like you can cozy up inside a bit, doesn't it? When we have to be inside anyway, yeah. as opposed to just dreaming of being outside.
0: For context Uh. uh, to our non-UK listeners, it's basically been sunny and hot here for about six weeks. (sighs) Since the start of lockdown, it's just been the most gorgeous weather and it's like, it's like the gods have been taunting us.
1: Who have you spoken to this week?
0: Well, this week, it was my turn to do the non-COVID-19 related piece. And I spoke to our colleague in the communications department, Gittiger Bourdouage, about an article that she wrote recently for The World Today, which looked at a visit that Gandhi made to Chatham House in 1931.
1: Okay, fantastic. Why did he come?
0: Well, no spoilers, of course, but he was making quite a significant visit to London at that time as part of the push to Indian independence. And I think from what I can tell, he was basically going around trying to spread the word as far and wide outside of his meetings with the government, trying to go out, meet as many people as possible, get out into kind of civil society in the UK and to try and sort of spread the word that India could be an independent nation and that it was the right thing to do for the empire to take a step back. Interesting. And I can't believe how strange it must have been, you know, to be speaking in front of what I guess at that time was an incredibly kind of establishment audience. I can't imagine the people at Chatham House that were listening were necessarily the most independence (laughs) activist-minded people.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, male and pale, probably. Yeah, interesting. Quite imperial. Yeah, Gosh, yeah. The world has changed a lot.
0: i happy to say that's no longer the case at Chatham House. But Agnes, mm-hmm. who did you speak to?
1: So I spoke to Dr Patricia Lewis, who is the Research Director of Conflict Science and Transformation and the Director of the International Security Program at Chatham House, about an expert comment she wrote last week called Legal Provision for Crisis Preparedness, Foresight, Not Hindsight, which is not potentially a hugely clear title. So (laughs) it's a really interesting concept around basically how countries and governments could be better prepared for future crises and how we could mitigate them. So she's talking about basically having an agreement put together by different states as to what they feel they have to provide in the case of a crisis. So they'll all work together and hold each other accountable whether the UN does that or another body. And she is looking at different sort of case studies of of how prepared different countries were for coronavirus, looking at South Korea or the US or the UK and what she thinks governments should plan for in the future and how they can plan differently. So yeah, sort of a more practical approach to corona rather than looking back on, on what we should or could have done, sort of looking forwards as to how governments can mitigate damage like this in the future.
0: Fascinating. Well, have a
1: listen. So I am here with Dr. Patricia Lewis, who is a friend of the podcast, but also Research Director, Conflict Science and Transformation, and Director of International Security Programme at Chatham House. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Agnes. How are you doing? I have a lot of hay fever, as you can hear, but how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Doing well. Good. Just because it's boring to always ask people how they're coping in this scenario when none of us are. (laughs) crack on. So we're here today to talk about an expert comment that you wrote for the Chatham House website called... Legal Provision for Crisis Preparedness, Foresight, Not Hindsight. I'm going to read the intro because that's a confusing title potentially. So COVID-19 is proving to be a grave threat to humanity, but this is not a one-off. There will be future crises and we can be better prepared to mitigate them. Can you tell us a bit about what your article says?
2: Yeah, so this began really because I... Through my career, I've been involved with a lot of work that has fed into preparedness for crises like this. When I was in California, I was part with colleagues um, in Monterey, part of a, a CDC, that's the Centre for Disease Controls in the United States, the, under the National Institutes of Health in the Northern California, a big project that was run by Berkeley called PERC, which is a Preparedness for Emergency Response Research Centres and these were all over the country and uh, all over the country there were drills tabletop exercises studies done on what you needed to do to prepare for pandemics for you know radioactive release for toxic spills you, you can you think of it it could be a disaster or it could be a human made Tragedy and people spent days and days and days, weeks, years of their lives. Some of them working on this and advising the government on how to prepare for the sort of thing that we've just seen now. The same things happened in this country. It's also happened in all in many other countries all over the world.
1: Year was that? Like when was that that you were in
2: California? This work started around. 2009, 2010, 2012, that kind of time, but it's been going on all of that time. There were big exercises done about five, six years ago, all over the place in preparation, particularly after SARS. Some of these things were took place after MERS and Ebola outbreaks, where people could see how very quickly some of these diseases were being a transmitted from animal into human and then from human to human and how particularly in urban environments uh, these could spread quite rapidly in the case of sars and mers these are the two coronaviruses they were far more lethal than what we're seeing now but they weren't as contagious nonetheless it gave everyone pause and made people realize just what could happen
1: people have probably heard of sars but mers is a bit more niche what what did MERS stand for? Was it around the same time? What Was it similar?
2: So the MERS is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So it's, it's related. It's another coronavirus and it's still spreading, but in a way that is easier to prevent its spread because it requires much closer proximity to the people who have it. Having said that, it did go to other countries and one of those countries was South Korea. And South Korea had prepared for pandemics very extensively because of what happened with SARS, the first SARS, you might say, because we are now in what could be called the second SARS. So they had prepared for that. And then they then got this outbreak of MERS and then they realised that their preparedness needed quite a big upgrade and a big boost. So they did an awful lot more. They they had quite a shock with that and they did an awful lot more. And I think if you look at the way South Korea was prepared for this new SARS-2, it could be called, SARS-CoV-2 is its proper name, and the way in which other countries were not as prepared, then you can see the difference. You can see the impact of having had these sort of earlier shocks and thinking them through. It's a bit like uh, Nicholas Taleb, the man who wrote The Black Swan. You know, he has developed this idea of anti-fragility in which you have a system which undergoes sort of small shocks, which he thinks can help prepare, in a sense, vaccinate against uh, future shocks. And you could see that happening in South Korea. But it's true, I mean, countries like the UK and and the US and so on had many things in place ready for a major outbreak of uh, influenza, a new type of influenza, or even a new emerging disease. But then some things have made it much more difficult for these countries. And one of them, certainly in the UK, was even though they had you know, built up a large stockpile of equipment like masks and gloves, eye masks, and so on, they, they had decided to cut costs as a result of the austerity program and had decided to spend some of that down to help the NHS around sort of 2017 and so you know even though they were prepared in some ways in other ways they were not prepared at all even though I think probably parliamentarians would have thought they were.
1: So before we move on maybe to the way that the UK was or wasn't prepared on a practical note what was it that South Korea did? how, How did they prepare? So South Korea, first of all, set up the infrastructure
2: to deliver the equipment that is needed in a pandemic. They had obviously researchers, they had a institute set up, but they also had a legal requirement, for example, to distribute antiviral supplies, which might be medication, it could be equipment or whatever, to nominated regions, they would be like um, local resilience groups or local institutes. So a legal requirement to do that and they also took it, they they had upped its level of significance and importance within their whole defence and security processes and they saw it as a major threat. I think in this country there were a group of people who really did understand that but somehow it hadn't kicked up into the higher political echelons quite as much. Now, having said that, last year, the Joint Committee Strategy, JNSS, decided, rightly, to hold an inquiry into the UK's preparedness for a pandemic. Unfortunately, because of the political turbulence in the UK last year, they opened up the inquiry and they had a few written submissions, but they never held any hearings. And then they had to close the inquiry at the election last year and haven't been able to reinstate it since. So it's not true that people weren't aware. And I think if you had asked the politicians who were really concerned and taken up with the issue they would have been very surprised to hear that there were not adequate prepositioned stocks of gloves and and masks and so on. And I think that's one of the things that will have to be investigated afterwards as to how that happened and why it happened. So this is why I think we need to have
1: a legal requirement. So before you go on to that, it is a a difficult, think potentially to sell to the electorate, the idea of spending money on things just in case, when people potentially think that other things should be invested in. So in your piece, you have a, as you mentioned before, you think there's a there should be a legal requirement, but how can you guarantee that safeguarding of funding for things that you don't necessarily know you're going to need to spend money on? It might be a waste of money, uh, or it might save millions of lives.
2: This is a really important question. So, you know, we have exactly the same discussions, for example, in aircraft design. So everyone wants cheap flights and everyone wants to reduce the carbon footprint, but everyone wants to fly safely. You know, there's a cost-benefit exercise in all of that. But if you think about airlines, I think most, almost all of them, and any I would travel on would prioritise safety. And we all know the ones that don't, or <laughs> well, we all think we do. But, but, you know, the prioritization of safety when it comes to things like aircraft and the way in which we fly and air traffic control, etc., cetera, is paramount. And so it does cost, yes. And it may be that that aircraft will fly forever and never have an incident, in which case you might say, well, that was a waste of money. But you probably wouldn't. you probably think, what a great aircraft. It had all of these safety features and it never had an accident. So we have a problem, I think, in our societies about thinking like this. Engineers are trained to think like this, but many of us think, oh, that might not happen. And it's why you'll often see people say, well, I won't worry about insuring the contents of my house because it might not happen. I might not get broken into. I probably won't have a fire, etc., etc." And it isn't until those things happen that they... Realise that they would have been better off if they had insured. And it's why we make car insurance compulsory, because if we didn't make it compulsory, people would make the same calculations. And, you know, we we do allow for third-party only insurance when it comes to cars, so that if you do have an accident and you've caused it, then you have to pay for the other person's damage but you know, you will then regret not, not having had fully comprehensive insurance because you also have to pay for your damage. So we've thought, we have thought this through in many spheres. I think one of the great examples for me was in 1999 when it became very clear to computer scientists that we were about to have a catastrophe at the end of the year when the clocks changed and the computers were not programmed to go on to the year 2000. And that became the great Y2K project. A huge amount of work was done, and almost all of the computers in the whole world were fixed, or those that really mattered were fixed anyway. There were some glitches around the world, um, but in the end, none of the ones that would have seen airplanes falling, you know, or, not, or air traffic control not being able to cope or the hospital computers uh, failing, etc. None of those things happened in any major way. But if you talk to people now about Y2K and those who lived through it, they'll go, well, you see, there's a very good
1: example. It never happened. So what was the point of all that? I was just going to say, it's become a joke, because people thought it was ridiculous, rather than realizing that it- nothing happened because people worked so hard to make sure nothing happened. Exactly.
2: We have this all the way through with prevention. And, you know, it's the same with conflict prevention. And you could argue as well, it's the same with health. We all know what we should do for our health, what, you know, why we, should, we shouldn't smoke, we shouldn't drink, we shouldn't eat this, eat that. And we all know that. But, you know, hey, it might not happen. And I know someone who's 95 who smoked and drank all his life and he's fine. And so we, it's very human. To not do these things unless you're forced to. And that's my point. So I completely understand why in a time of austerity you might think, oh, will this really happen in the next couple of years? Can we get away with it? And you know, isn't it a terrible waste of money? You know, do we really need masks? Do we really need goggles? Apparently they decided we didn't need goggles because then they would be too expensive to purchase and store. And then we didn't need so many masks. Somebody probably, you know, did a best case analysis and decided that that's probably what would happen. And then we end up in this situation. And so it's really about saving us from ourselves. It's not being judgmental in that I think what happens in these situations is very human. But it's about understanding what we do and how, in a sense, like with car insurance, we have to be forced into doing the right thing quite often.
1: Well, because it's also, if you're in the position of making judgments about how one spends money, I can see why, prior to this, you would think, OK, so I could stock up on goggles or I can buy another dialysis machine. You know, yeah. It's not that anybody turns up to work going, you know what I'd like? I'd like to kill a lot of NHS health workers when there's a pandemic. Nobody did that, No. But your proposal is to use the UN Security Council. Right.
2: So, well, my my proposal is that there should be national legislation in every country that doesn't have it. Yeah. And where they do have it, such as in the United States, you might want to look at improving it. Okay. That's my main proposal. Yeah, And that's essentially to save us from ourselves. But I think as well that it could be helpful at the international level. And I've seen this in other things too, where you can demonstrate what you've done nationally to each other. So what we do in this country affects everyone around us. You know, what the Netherlands is doing, what Italy was doing, it affected everyone in their region. So regionally, it could help to have a mechanism where people explain what they're doing to help protect everyone against pandemics or other other crises it doesn't have to be just pandemics we've got climate change and a whole set of big crises coming down our way in terms of extreme weather events and everything and this happens in other fields like the nuclear field there is a mechanism in for which countries can tell each other what steps they're taking to increase the security of their nuclear facilities for example because you know if we have god forbid another you know, Fukushima or Chernobyl, it will affect everyone in the region, it doesn't stop at the border. And so there's a mechanism now that we have in which countries tell each other what they're doing, it's called assurance. And then countries can carry out peer review of each other's measures that they put in place to prevent and then mitigate damage. And it works quite well, Everybody's learning from each other. If you, there's a there's a sort of a nuclear energy community, if you like, which goes across national boundaries, and so there's a sort of nuclear security culture that's built up. There are of course sensitivities, no doubt, but they are sharing information to help keep the industry secure and safe.
1: So I'm going to ask you two more questions before I let you go. First one so you mentioned the nuclear community or the cybersecurity community the way currently potential disasters might play out are potentially more rigid or could be predicted a bit more do you think we can truly prepare for pandemics in that isn't every pandemic slightly different that's the tricky thing about health there are, you know whether you need ventilators or masks or actually whether you need dialysis you know, machines or And the investment required to have a broad enough range of things to protect people against everything is huge. I think that's true,
2: absolutely. So so one of the things that you have to do is sort of work backwards, step yourself backwards from a whole set of crises and then look underneath to see where there are some common denominators. So for any infectious disease, gloves, masks, gowns is a no-brainer. You won't get it ever 100% right but you can at least have done some due diligence work. As I say, engineers do this all the time. And then ventilators, you're right. I mean, who would have thought about, you know, having that number of ventilators needed, but actually in the end we were able in many countries to ratchet up the number of ventilators and hospital beds quite quickly. What we weren't able to do was produce the number of gloves and masks as quickly as possible. And so I think one of the things that we have to understand are supply chains in this regard and have perhaps contingencies for emergency supply chains put in place. So that would not mean that you'd necessarily be stockpiling huge numbers of things that you might never need, but that you would have in place a mechanism which then gathered together sectors of industry who had always known that they would be called upon in this instant. And you could do drills which included that. That's the kind of thing I mean. I, I don't mean that you have to prepare for every single emergency. And also you might not know exactly what will happen. But there are some due diligence common denominators that you can put in place for a whole range of emergencies. If you take, for example, people who live in earthquake areas. I lived in, in Northern California and everyone's always expecting the big one. So, you know, we had regular drills for earthquakes, like people have fire drills. Everyone had a bag uh, at their door that was always packed with water, first aid kits, a radio, a torch, all that kind of thing. You were told what to put in it and it always had to be there. There was a very different attitude. People were expecting it. People built new buildings, had to, by law, have built in particular dampening capabilities so it could withstand a certain level of earthquake. And this is all over, Tokyo is the same, you know, all of these countries who, who are expecting earthquakes. So I think that there are things that you can do and then people find that completely acceptable, even though it's quite costly, because they understand what the alternative is. And we're at a stage now, I think, where South Korea understood what the alternative was because of the infection of the mares. We now understand quite differently to how we understood a year ago and this is a moment I think to put that to sort of put some things in place so that in 30 years time the people then who are making decisions they may not understand but they will still have to do this.
1: That's a very positive note to end on but I have one last question for you. (laughs) We're all in lockdown Patricia, we're all bored. What have you read or watched or listened to recently that's really gripped you aside from coronavirus what would you recommend that our listeners try
2: oh, one thing i'm doing is called the self-isolation choir and we're singing the messiah and it's with a guy called ben england and anyone can join it and there's like 3,000 people all over the world now in it oh, it's a very weird experience um so it's on youtube you can join you join it by paying a small amount of money half of which goes to charity and you can download or by the Messiah score, they, they can download it for you so don't, you don't have to pay, but it's somewhat easier sometimes to have the score to hand because there's a lot, of, a lot of notes in there and it's fun. And, and um, if you know other people who are doing it, you can kind of text each other during it going, God, that was great. And then there's a, a chat thing down the side, but you're singing on your own. You're not hearing everyone else. Okay. So it's a bit weird. So then the idea is that you record yourself on your phone and you send it in and they kind of electronically mash it all together. And there are going to be uh, soloists and an orchestra and it will be the 31st of May and it will go out.
1: Well, that's wonderful. I'm very excited about that. We will link to that in uh, the show notes here as we will also link to your article, Patricia.
2: Hopefully you you won't be able to hear me because I'm really rubbish, but it's fun. Thank you (laughs) for
1: coming to us and uh, stay safe.
2: And I hope everyone stays safe. It's, It's really great. Thanks a lot.
3: Thank you.
0: Great. So today I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Gitika Baudouage, from the communications department. Gitika, how are you doing?
3: I'm good, thank you. How are you, Ben?
0: Good. I'm I'm doing well. My brother is learning guitar in the background to this. So apologies <laughs> if we've got a little musical interlude. I hope it's That's not great. too audible on the. Uh, <laughs> I said he's learning guitar. <laughs> very much a work in progress. But we're here today to talk about an article that you wrote for our magazine, The World Today, about a very exciting visit that happened to Chatham House in 1931 as part of what would become the regular series of events that Chatham House has become known for over its 100 years of history. So Gitika, who came to Chatham House in 1931 that we need to talk about?
3: Well, this article is the first in a series we're running this year to celebrate Chatham House's centenary. Of course, as you mentioned, Chatham House was formed in 1920 to be a place to discuss the most critical international issues of the time. And the aim of this series is to look back at some of those major people who have come throughout the organization's 100-year history. This article in particular explores Mahatma Gandhi, who mm. came to Chatham House in October 1931, and he spoke about the future of India through his eyes. We also assess how far India has since come with respect to some of the issues he spoke of um, almost 90 years ago in the hall at Chatham House.
0: That's fascinating. So why was Mahatma Gandhi in London in 1931?
3: Well, the story of why Gandhi was in London is actually extremely interesting. His trip to Chatham House came at a crucial time in the Indian independence movement. And between 1930 and 1932, the British government had called a series of roundtable conferences to consider reform in India. There had been a growing, though far from unanimous acceptance in Britain that India needed increased self-rule. And as a result, a series of meetings were set up to determine how far along the path of self-rule India could go. The first of these conferences was held in 1930, and although it included Indian princes and representatives of several Indian political parties alongside British politicians, it notably didn't include any members of the Indian National Congress, which was a pro-independence group that was growing in size in India at the time. And that also included Mahatma Gandhi himself, who was a central figure of the Indian National Congress. The leaders of the Indian National Congress and Mahatma Gandhi himself had actually been imprisoned just months earlier for their involvement in the Salt March, which took place in March 1930. Now, the Salt March was one of the most famous acts of nonviolent civil disobedience at the time that would capture the attention of the international media, and it would put a spotlight on the growing Indian independence movement around the world. It was only when British viceroy Lord Irwin uh, negotiated the Gandhi-Irwin Pact in the spring of 1931 that the non-violent civil disobedience campaign against the salt tax ended in exchange for several concessions, um, including the release of thousands of political prisoners. The second roundtable conference was then convened in September of 1931, bringing Gandhi to London.
0: That's really fascinating and, and interesting also that the change in stance about whether to include Gandhi and Gandhi's movement in these negotiations happened over such a short space of time. What was it, do you think, about the Salt March that really made that change in policy from the British perspective?
3: Well, the Salt March was just one of many campaigns of non-violent civil disobedience that Gandhi and the Indian National Congress had been uh, waging over the past couple of years. And this in particular garnered a lot of international attention, which was almost impossible for the British government to ignore. Also, the first of these roundtable conferences actually didn't achieve a lot. And I think that made Lord Irwin and other members of the British political elite realise that they needed to negotiate with Gandhi and the Indian National Congress in any future discussions of reform in India.
0: Right, okay. So then Indian National Congress were invited to join the second conference in 1931 in in London. What were the main items on the agenda and what were the outcomes from that?
3: Well, the outcome of the roundtables was the 1935 Government of India Act, which shifted some powers to local institutions, but which received little support in India for not going far enough. In part, the division of powers between local and national level institutions was intended to destroy support for Gandhi's Indian National Congress, but it significantly failed to do so.
0: And while Gandhi was in London for the second of these conferences, he came to Chatham House. Now, why would he have done that?
3: Well, Gandhi had, of course, come to Britain to attend the second roundtable conference. But during his time here, he also travelled around Britain, arguing his case for Indian independence, as he did at Chatham House. It was almost like a tour to Mm. make his case for why India should be granted home rule from Britain. One of the memorable places he did travel to was Lancashire, where he would meet workers, mainly women and children, who were working at a UK textile factory
0: why was the textile industry significant?
3: Gandhi had seen how British industrialisation had increased poverty in India, particularly the UK textile industry. So for him, the spinning wheel was the way forward for India, which was a symbol of self-reliance rather than foreign imports. Gandhi's economic ideas need to be seen in the context of the national struggle, which was extremely important for him at the time.
0: And so set the scene for us. So Gandhi came to speak at Chatham House, like who was there? Tell us a bit about that.
3: So it was a Tuesday in late October when Mahatma Gandhi addressed an overflowing hall at Chatham House. He was sitting next to Philip Kerr, the Marquess of Lothian, who would soon become the Undersecretary of State for India. The room was filled with many of the type of people you would expect to find at Chatham House today, including diplomats, academics, members of the media and also Chatham House members too.
0: And I guess in some ways an audience that was kind of representative of the British elite at that time, I suppose.
3: Yes, exactly. And I think it's interesting when you see some of the questions and answers from the speech that some of those questions were quite critical of what Mahatma Gandhi had been saying.
0: What was the main thrust of Gandhi's speech then? What were the key points that he was making?
3: Well, what struck me the most from Mahatma Gandhi's speech at Chatham House were two things. Firstly, his case for Indian independence, but secondly, the parallels that exist between some of the issues he described that afflicted India in 1931, which continue to afflict India to some degree today. The first of these is poverty. In his address at Chatham House, Gandhi outlined the challenges he believed the Indian people faced in British India. Describing the state of poverty at the time, he said, nearly one-tenth of the population is living in a condition of semi-starvation. They have no more than one meal a day, consisting of stale chapati and a pinch of dirty salt. But he said that if India were to govern itself, poverty needed to be alleviated through service to the villages. And he said, the cities do not make India, it's the villages. Princes will come and princes will go. Empires will come and empires will go. But this India living in her villages will remain just as it is.
0: That's an awesome quote.
3: It's one of my favourites. So Gandhi's great-grandson, Tushar Gandhi, who I spoke to for the article, explained to me how the Gandhian principle of Saravodaya, the lifting up of all, guided how his great-grandfather believed poverty should be addressed in a post-independent India. The principle was based on the understanding that it was important to start at the bottom of society instead of the top. Today, India is the world's fifth largest economy and poverty reduction rates are among the highest in the world. But his great grandson told me that he didn't think this was how his great grandfather would have envisaged India's economic growth, saying that um, although millions have been lifted out of poverty, there is still a lot of poverty that still exists in India, uh, which still needs to be addressed.
0: That's so interesting. And and did he stick pretty straight to the economic analysis, the kind of poverty angle on this, or were there other aspects of society that he was analysing through this?
3: Yeah, exactly. He also spoke of another issue that struck me as being poignant today as it was then, and that's religious pluralism. In 1931, Gandhi said, we have within our population the problem of minorities. Religious harmony was central to Gandhi's dream of a post-independent India. Yet conflict along religious lines has been a continual problem in a multicultural population where almost 80% of the population are Hindu and more than 14% are Muslim. Recent communal clashes between Hindus and Muslims in New Delhi is a case in point, with the latest explosion of religious conflict leaving hundreds of people injured and over 50 people dead. Mahatma Gandhi's great-grandson also said to me that in recent decades, the rhetoric of hate has been much more prevalent than the rhetoric of harmony which is troubling to see.
0: Okay, and in what might have been a somewhat hostile environment, did Gandhi address head-on the issue of independence?
3: Yeah, he was actually quite direct about that. In his closing statement, Gandhi declared, the masses in India are awakening and it's too late to persuade them that good alien rule is better than bad indigenous rule. In 1947, India would succeed in obtaining independence from the British Empire, but less than six months later, Gandhi would be assassinated. His legacy, however, would inspire civil rights activists and freedom movements around the world, from Martin Luther King in the US to Nelson Mandela in South Africa. The interesting question for me, however, was whether Gandhi continues to have the same appeal in modern India. And this isn't the case according to the experts I spoke to for the article. Nevertheless, for some, his principles are reawakening among Indian civil society in response to some of those challenges that Gandhi described in his speech almost 90 years ago at Chatham House.
0: Wow. It sounds like it would have been a fascinating event to attend. Like sometimes <laughs> you sit in the hall and you think, "Ah, oh, is this actually going to be significant years later? And it just shows that <laughs> on certain occasions, speeches really were and that they mm-hmm. had a kind of lasting impact in some ways. Could you tell us a bit more about the rest of the series that you're working on?
3: Other additions in the series that we're hoping to explore include Millicent Fawcett, who had some involvement with Chatham House in its early years, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who came to Chatham House in the 1980s, and also Nelson Mandela, who also attended a Chatham House conference in 1996, which should be extremely exciting.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a brilliant series. And it's just one of many centenary-related activities that are going on at Chatham House this year. There's a lot on the website now if you go and search for centenary. It's something that we're relatively preoccupied by, or, or we were until, until obviously lockdown began and our focus had to come to matters that are a bit more present. But it's going to be great to be reading these histories throughout the year. Gittica Bodwash, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank
1: you, Ben. Great. What an interesting listen. Thank you, Ben and Gittica.
0: Yeah, and you can read Getica's article in the world today on the Chatham House website now. And I believe the future installments of her Centenary series are also going to be available there. So keep an eye out for those.
1: Excellent. You can also read Patricia's expert comment, which is what that interview is based on. We'll link below. Mm. I don't know if you've seen this. Sicily have just said, if you visit this autumn, the island will pay for half of your flights. They released that's that it. yesterday. Yeah, the Italian island is offering a major incentive for all those who go there later this year. In a move to reboot its tourism sector, the regional government will cover half the cost of visitors' flights and a third of their hotel expenses. So this sounds like an advert Sicily. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> but don't you think that's interesting? That's yeah. fascinating, yeah. And I'm, I yeah. guess we're going to have to, like, increasingly, states are going to be responding in this way to try and kickstart, particularly the ones that are so reliant on tourism. Right? If
1: nothing else... If to have things booked in, you know, to know
0: people are booking to come, absolutely, um, rather than promising it. But, but Agnes, where are you getting your news from? Like, where did you find that? Because I feel like one of the things that's been so strange in this crisis is that everything that I'm thinking about has then become kind of UK focused. I'm much yes. I'm thinking so much more about the kind of domestic situation than. Maybe I normally would
1: have done. Well, I've quite consciously this week been trying to think about other things. So I've actually been, I asked our good friend Max Frass, who is a friend of the pod who works on Eastern Europe, for some reading background on Saakashvili. He's the former Georgian president. Okay? okay. And he relaunched himself as a sort of Ukrainian reformist politician. Nothing really came of that. But Zelensky has just made him or is, um, I mean, the coming days, Ukrainian MPs have to gather to vote on this Mm. because Zelensky, president of Ukraine, has put him forward to be the new deputy prime minister for reforms. So there's a really great piece by the Atlantic Council called Is Really the Right Choice for Ukraine? Which is really interesting by Peter Dickinson. Then there's um, a Georgian perspective on Eurasianet, called um, Sakashvili seeks return as Ukraine's vice premier. The former Georgian president is having a second go at Ukrainian politics. He's just such an interesting figure because he keeps coming back in different forms. So I'm trying to educate myself on something that isn't to do with corona. What about you, though, Ben? Where are you getting your news from at the moment that isn't It just to be
0: thinking about something else. I'm not following things very well in terms of the international situation. But I think, to be honest, I'm getting a lot of it from podcasts So far we me to be trying to get our listeners to, to listen to other things. But I'm sure many of them are already aware. But I think, yeah, The Daily from The New York Times has been doing mm-hmm. some really interesting stuff that's not just what's President Trump doing about this. They've really looked at the kind of local response and the state response to coronavirus and also how it's changed New York as a city which I found interesting. really, really interesting, just from a community perspective. And I think also Talking Politics, which I'm sure many people listen to. They're fantastic, the team over there at Cambridge University. They've been doing some really interesting interviews with people outside of the UK. I've particularly enjoyed the ones they've been doing on Italy and the situation mm-hmm. there. So, yeah, I mean, I, would, I wish I could say that I was reading all of the kind of international newspapers and keeping up to date, but I think it's a lot of listening. From my side,
1: and when are you listening to podcasts? Because I think this is a problem a lot of people are facing at the moment. Now that you know commutes have been cut, or yeah, when are you finding the time to do to do that?
0: Just all day long. I've got no one to talk really. To yeah just lonely, lonely at work <laughs> normally my colleagues just get a stream of consciousness from me at work in the, <laughs> that's all they get all of my innermost thoughts need to be shared with the entire with the entire team but actually now they're not around sadly and I can't be bothered to whatsapp them all all of these thoughts so I'm just I'm left with my thoughts and my podcasts so cool so my iphone's getting a lot of use
1: <laughs> <laughs> interesting People have been getting in touch through the website uh, with particular issues they want to talk about, they want us to talk about, which has been really interesting to hear from you. So please keep doing that or get in contact with us via Twitter. I'm at Agnes Frim and Ben is at Ben R. Horton.
0: Absolutely. And uh, thanks very much for listening as ever.
1: And in the meantime...
0: I'm Ben Horton.
1: I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents.